Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today I'm joined by Mark Tyrrell, not only an experienced therapist, but a gifted trainer and speaker on psychological techniques. Mark is a prolific creator of learning materials and training products that help literally thousands of therapists to improve their skills. In fact, a recent project of his, which could be referred to as Netflix for Therapists, allows people to see Mark actually treating real clients so people can see real therapy in action. As the co-founder of both Uncommon Knowledge and HypnosisDownloads.com, I'm sure today will be absolutely fascinating, but obviously no pressure, Mark. Thank you very much for the pressure, and um, <laughs> it's great to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. So look, jumping straight in, really, um, wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and, and how really you got started. Okay, well, um, I spend a lot of time uh, writing now and also delivering online training, um, as well as seeing clients uh, via Skype and also face-to-face. I run or help run um, a really busy hypnosis download site called hypnosisdownloads.com, which has about a thousand uh, different downloads. Uh, We also um, run Uncommon Help Me, which is uh, a site with... uh, about 120 different articles on just sort of self-help me articles but also mm. informational articles you know so people uh, learning about depression or what panic is what panic attacks are how addictions work and so forth because i think really it's power to the people you know psychological psychological knowledge i believe and i've always thought this needs to be in the hands of everyday people rather than the sort of elite expertism you know, and although in some ways I have set myself up as an expert, so it sounds paradoxical, um, part of my ethos, if you like, or my raison d'etre um, has always been and will remain to be uh, to really sort of promulgate psychological knowledge so that, you know, we can raise psychological health in, in, in the population as a whole, which sounds grandiose, but, you know, you can psychoanalyze me yeah. about that. <laughs> another time, perhaps, another time. Um, <laughs> And how did you get started in all right. this? Uh, back in oh, the late 1980s, I was working in um, acute psychiatric uh, wards. They used to call them, I don't know whether they still do, but they used to call them locked wards. So these were people who were deemed a danger to other people and or a danger to themselves. Um, so I would be on... on uh, level one suicide watch you know and and mm-hmm. I, I would do, i would help help sort of deal i say deal with because the treatment or the therapy was kind of non-existent really uh with people who were severely psychotic um you know and and, and all profoundly depressed um or extremely addicted and um I got, you know, I sort of went into that in the first place, partly because I needed a job. I was an auxiliary nurse, um, psychiatric nurse, so, so I, I was basically doing, you know, everything that an RMN would do, but without the pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I really went into that because I wanted to, because I was fascinated by psychology, but also because I, I felt like somehow I could make a difference to, to these people. And, and really, I got kind of disillusioned um with the whole process it was all about sort of containment and giving drugs and there was lots of revolving door patients who would come in and out and, and never seem to make that much progress and um 
eventually I, I left that partly because I had to get a better pay job because I had a young family at the time. And um, I sort of retrained as a, as a psychotherapist and a hypnotherapist and started working and very quickly found that to my amazement, um, the very types of conditions, not perhaps not the, so, so much psychosis, uh, but extremely depressed people or extremely addicted people or extremely terrified people could be profoundly helped through words, through psychological means. And this was the antithesis of, of the philosophy of the psychiatric hospitals in which everything was about um, if someone was more upset this week, then it was about brain chemicals and not context of, of, of their experience, if you like. And, uh, you know, so I went from one extreme to the other and finding that we could actually help conditions that weren't meant to be helpable that easily or that quickly, if you like, I wouldn't say easily because it's not always easy. Mm. Um, and um, that that just a profound shift in my perspective, really. And um, very early on, quite early on, so I was seeing clients for about a year or so and also helping things that weren't supposed to be helped through psychological means like like sort of physical pain or, you know, blood pressure, things like that. So, so early on, I, I did a talk. I, I I, I sort of got a uh, slot, if you like, at the uh, local health centre, which is no longer there in Brighton, and it was a, it was very alternative, you know, and um, sort of wind chimes everywhere and that kind of thing. And, and I, um, the guy that ran that, said to me, "There's an open day, you know, mm -hmm. and um, you know, every all the practitioners are going to give a speech about about their, um, you know, specific." Um, area of, of practice can you give a speech and i said yes of course and i was instantly terrified and you know needed <laughs> needed, needed to see a hypnotherapist because because I, i'd never i'd never done any public speaking before and uh, i was i was there for the whole day watching the other practitioners and when it came to do my turn it was huge you know so many people had turned up for my speech and part of me was you know felt sickened by that you know but 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 some part of me thought oh this is this is you know there's obviously a hunger for this kind of stuff psychological element mm. and I, I gave my speech and it was pretty probably quite awful but i did a hypnotic demonstration because of, uh, from a volunteer because it sort of took the focus off me you know and uh, <laughs> and she she was extremely hypnotic you know uh, thankfully and um so i gave that speech and, I, and, and then i started running workshops i thought well there's obviously a demand for this so i started running workshops and um then eventually eventually after a few years of, of doing that up and down the country uh, we started running our diploma course in uh, brief solution focused psychotherapy and hypnotherapy at the, the brighton university mm. and, we, and we ran that for 10 years and, and but we also started um, doing stuff online in in 1999 me and my my business partner roger elliott and um the rest is history really as i say <laughs> it, it's amazing and I, I wanted to go to go back actually and pick you up on something you mentioned which was um certainly looking at the psychiatric stuff that was going on it was all about looking at it from a brain chemical point of view yeah do you think there's a place that that has within the therapeutic intervention work uh in helping someone who is perhaps suffering with what they might call clinical depression i i, I think i think you know it's very very difficult if you're a a doctor, GP, general practitioner, in an inner city uh, practice, and people are knocking on your door, knocking the door down, because they're depressed, and there's so many depressed people. And I, I don't, I don't sort of blame anybody for prescribing antidepressants. And I, I think certainly, um, if there's, if there's a um, crisis, you know, then using uh, medication to calm somebody down enough to actually help them in other ways is extremely valuable. I, th I think the problem has been that um, medication has been, as we know, highly marketed. And of course, the best marketing model, talk about Netflix for therapists, is to have a recurring income. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, that that's uh, if someone's on antidepressants for life. So, so when, um, when Prozac, you know, became a bestseller, then, uh, you know, you, you had um, people sort of saying, well, you know, everyone should be on it. It's a lifestyle drug, you know, you should give kids, you know, from, from the womb, they should be on this stuff to avoid depression and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, and, and, and I, I kind of got interested in that. I thought, well, the, you know, this chemical imbalance idea, 
you know, everything used to be Freudian. It used to all be your childhood, and, and there was a sort of big assumption that understanding why something happened will somehow, you know, getting a theory as to why, you know, when you were six months old, your grandmother looked at you disapprovingly, and that's why you have panic attacks in your 60s, you know. Mm. Uh, is that kind of, you know, take everything back, and, you know, all, and, and that that's kind of, you know, an extreme example, but that that's kind of moved on. Thankfully, but now there is, especially in America and the UK, um, and other parts of the industrial industrialized world, that there's the idea that um, long-term treatment with medication is the only way, and you have a condition, and context is missed. That's the that's the issue I have. Mm-hmm. You know, so somebody could, um, you, you know, they, they could have lost someone that's very dear to them. They might have lost their job. They've they've lost a husband or a wife or a partner, and you know, they've died or they've split up or whatever it is and that's the context which can be ignored and we're just looking at dosage now interestingly enough with antidepressants dosage doesn't make any difference you know so a high dosage of antidepressant isn't any more or less effective than a low dosage you know but a lot of what um happens of course is what change the, the dosage you know but um you know scientific, but a lot of people don't know that so mm-hmm. there's a piece of information that people don't know some gps some doctors don't know that Certainly many psychotherapists don't, didn't know that. So, um, you know, we have to question some of the ideas that the, the serotonin idea is is built on, you know, yeah. and, and we have to look at the facts. And, and, and really, um, we started Uncommon Knowledge and we, we call it sensible psychology because we do, uh, you know, for psycholo- psychological knowledge to, to help the world, it needs to be grounded in, in, in common sense, but also actual research and sometimes we might have to separate that from marketing which is yeah we, we live in the age of marketing of course and, and and you know not not just personal business but uh you know certainly um you know big pharma if you like hmm. ph- pharmacology so yeah I, I, i'm not anti-drugs you know if uh, you know if i have a really bad infection or i need antibiotics and certainly you know i'm not uh, or you know if, if i develop cancer then, then I, i'm going to use chemotherapy you know i'm, I'm not anti-drugs and um, but what i am anti if you like is simplistic or reductionist ideas mm-hmm. that don't take the whole of the human being into account because some of the thoughts that I've I've come across before around that area are things like, you know, I mean, if you broke your leg and you go to hospital, they would want to work with you to help you heal the leg uh, yeah. rather than just going, well, here's a stick forever. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. And, and there's another one which was actually invented by GlaxoKline, I think, um, uh, was um, that if you had diabetes, you'd type 1 diabetes, you would um, take insulin for it. You know, that, that's another mm. one. And I've actually heard people say that. So, so the marketing has actually taken effect, you know, mm. uh, and, and, and that, that is perhaps slightly disingenuous an analogy, um, you know, really. You know, it's, it, you, you might say, well, someone's very tired because they haven't slept for 48 hours. Uh, and if you had uh, diabetes type 1, you'd take insulin, wouldn't you, rather than actually they need to sleep, which is a natural Yes, thing, you know, and 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 the sleep, if you like, or, or the need, is, is multivarious. With you know, the, the, the um, if we think about where the idea of the serotonin myth came from, so there's a guy called um, Doctor George Ashcroft, I think, in the late fifties, and he he thought he'd found lowered levels of serotonin in the brains of, of suicide victims, mm-hmm. and, you know, specifically in the in the spinal fluid of of depressed patients who then committed suicide now so later experiments with better equipment didn't find lower levels of serotonin in depressed people but and 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 ashcroft himself george ashcroft dropped the idea you know he he said so okay fair enough okay there was just an idea it seemed to be the case but it isn't the case but the psychiatric industry really sort of jumped on this if you you like because it, it seems to be a simple explanation you know if something's low then you just top it up a bit like oil in a car you know, and um, you know there, ha- there hasn't actually been a link between, conclusively found between serotonin levels in the brain and depression. You know, there's um, I can't remember the name of the antidepressant that's prescribed in France that actually lowers serotonin. You know, in in, in, in the brain, and it's no, and again, it's no less or more effective than antidepressants or placebo and, and so forth, and. Um, you, you know what? And certainly, antidepressants can work for some people. 
you know, and but not significantly more than a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. And and, and um, so, of course, if you think about that, the placebo effect isn't nothing. It's a strong thing. It's a powerful thing. And um, there's, you know, if you think about depression, it's all about expectations and negative expectations. So placebo is an antidepressant if the person invests belief in it, you know. Um, so so it, it's kind of working, working uh, you know, on a person's brain chemistry in a way because beliefs, you know, affect brain chemistry. What we feel, what we do affects brain chemistry. You know, depression affects brain chemistry. And the idea that the, the card has been put before the horse in some respects, perhaps, in that the idea is that, you know, um, the brain chemistry is causing the depression, which you may do in, in, in a small amount of depressed people. But it, there's no evidence that most depressions are caused by being born with the wrong level of brain chemicals, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know the the uh, and I'm not saying you know that no one should ever be given drugs or, or, or you know so, but it is quite frightening the level of, of uh, prescription. I think. Yeah. So I know we've mentioned briefly when we've spoken in the past that depression being an REM disorder, mm. and we're wondering whether you could elaborate on that. That seemed really fascinating. Okay. Okay. Well, it's not my idea. It's um, Joe Griffin who, who um, runs um, Human Givens. Um, but it seems to be, and, and well, it's certainly a fact that when people are depressed, they, they dream more than when they're not depressed. They have more rapid eye movement. It starts earlier in the night, um, and it carries on, um, you know, so rather than 25% of their sleep time being REM sleep, mm-hmm. which for most of us is, is the case when we're not depressed, it might be up to 70% of their sleep time, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. And the thing about REM sleep is that it is um, called paradoxical sleep because your blood pressure is the same, you know, it's quite similar to what it is when you're awake. Your brain um, rhythms are similar, you know, uh, to to, uh, when you're awake. So to all intents and purposes, it's a bit like being awake. So um, if you're over remming, it's going to exhaust you. And and um, it seems to be so, what what happens without getting too scientific. Hmm. What, what what happens um, when we enter the REM state is something called the orientation response gets fired in, in the brain. And sometimes you're aware of this when when you're you're um, you know sort of nodding off and suddenly you flicker. You kind of have a spasm, you know. And if you're on the train, it's slightly embarrassing, you know. <laughs> your coffee goes your coffee goes everywhere. And, you know, you just slap the guy next to you in the face. But 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 it, but it, it, it you know we, most of us have had that experience, and usually you're not conscious of that. And that's a beginning of the sort of REM firing. And it also also happens um, pons geronicular occipital spike in the brain sort of gets fired, you know, for to be scientific about it uh, during REM. But also when we have a shock. Okay, so you have a shock experience and you're in a car crash or something and everything goes dreamlike. People even describe it as being dreamlike and in mm. slow motion and so forth. So it's like they've been tipped, tipped into the through the orientation response firing, similar to the REM state at night, into the um, you know sort of dreamlike trance state, if you like, mm. where everything feels a bit weird and then you know it's all very shocking. And, and stage hypnotists seem to do this as well. They'll do something very unexpected and, and, and sort of quickly mobilize the REM response because we can equate rapid eye movement with the hypnotic state, you know, the, the old ways of, of um, you, know, you know, sort of uh, following the watch, the swinging watch with your eyes is directly getting rapid eye movement going, you know, in a very artificial way. And it, mm. and it seems, seems to induce the REM state, which can be accessed outside of sleep. That's made. Anyway, okay, I've gone off on a tangent there. Um, so, yes, depressed people dream more when they're depressed. They have more REM sleep, they have not enough slow wave recuperative stage four sleep. And so the lack of stage four sleep and the overabundance of uh, REM sleep has people who are depressed waking up feeling very tired and unmotivated. It's like they've been, you know, and it's and it seems to be that what causes the overremming is um, the overabundance of rumination. Okay, so there's two two facts we know about depression. Depressed people tend to over ruminate negatively, mm-hmm. okay, and um, but don't but don't solve the stuff they're worrying about. So it, it, uh, the time when they go to bed at night, it's still it, you know the arousal, the expectation, the negative expectation is still you know in the in the 
nervous system, so to speak, and the dreaming seems it tries to sort of flush out the expectation metaphorically, whether whether they remember their dreams or not. Okay, you know, um, and 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 um, for the next day, sort of thing. But if the person's over ruminating, they'll over dream, and and it's like a flat battery, and they wake up. And, and indeed, depressed people often say the worst. The mornings are the worst, you know. Mm. Uh, and they feel totally unmotivated even to get out of bed and, uh, and so forth. Now, a quick way seems to be to, to lift the symptoms of depression, not a not a treatment for depression at all, but to lift the symptoms is to um, wake someone up every time they're going into the REM state, and this has actually been done in, in studies, um, or just not sleep, you know, which isn't, isn't a great idea. But if, sometimes if you have a, a night where you don't sleep, in the morning, weirdly, you can feel kind of a bit manic and energised, you know, and you don't expect you'd expect to feel the opposite, and it maybe you know if you were over reming slightly, then then um, you know you sort of corrected that over reming thing. Now antidepressants lower rem states, okay. Mm. Um, so in, 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 so they might be working in a way which perhaps their you know the, the marketing agents don't know. You know that they're assuming it's the old serotonin idea, which you know is kind of falling out of favour a bit. Uh, and um, but it could be because it, um, SSRIs, particularly, I think, do inhibit the REM response. But the problem being, if someone is REMing because they're feeling very angry or very bitter or very frightened during the day, and so they're generating those emotional expectations in the, in, in the limbic system, but they're, they're not dreaming those out metaphorically. Hmm. Okay, then what? tends to happen is that the person will start to feel angry um, and and frightened and they'll start expressing that more and you know we, we know that SSRIs are, are um, or, or Siroxat specifically um, is a suicide risk taking those antidepressants and it may be that the person's now dreaming less they're reming less but now they're reming less they've got more energy but they're still feeling negative so they've got more energy to do bad stuff you know mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. um, so you know, in, in a way, if we look at the cycle of depression like that, we, we need to actually help somebody meet their needs in natural ways, so they naturally stop ruminating. So we go to the rumination part of the cycle, mm-hmm. so that they can start meeting their need, their primal, basic human needs, in ways which are healthy, and they, their, their sleep normalizes, and the whole the whole thing. You know, so antidepressants may work, but they may work in such a wonky way that it can be very risky. I, I mean, I think it's fascinating, but also what, what what kind of emerges is this idea of spotting a pattern and uh, shortcutting the pattern. That's some part yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, how, how similar is that as a as a process to facilitating change in other areas? Um, well, you know, early on when I started doing this sort of psychotherapy, 1993, which is a long time ago. Um, you, you were sometimes Especially get... given you're only 21. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, I must have only been about 12 when I, when I started. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I said that before you did. Um, I, I um, you, you know, you'd hear lots of people saying, oh, surely dealing with the, with, with, with the, the symptom is superficial, you know, mm-hmm. and they talk about symptom substitution and, and, and so forth. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Then I, I was reading up about systemic theory you know which is you change one part of the theory and everything else has to change to fit in you know it, it, like a, a rubik cube which i could never do by the way but you, you change one bit the whole the whole cube structure changes the whole pattern changes and um i started reading sort of stuff that milton erickson had, had uh, written and he he said something about you know if you change you know, because he had to put up with more of, of of this you know people you know very psychoanalytical back back in his day Saying this is terrible, you know, just dealing with the symptoms, and you know, and he would say, well, if you if you if you move the handle of the pot, then the whole pot will lift and it'll change and it'll go somewhere else. And, and that's a, of course, true in a sense, if you think about it, when you deal with a symptom, you deal with the, the cause as well, quite often, if that makes sense. Mm. So, um, so some of the people who who shout the loudest about treating symptoms is superficial are the, are the ones that don't know how to treat the symptoms. I have to say, you know, I don't like to say things like that, but. Sometimes things have to be said. No, that's fine. Uh, it's not like we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, so, so of course they're going to sh- shout loudly about that. Um, you know, on, on the occasion there may be symptom substitution. It could be that the person really isn't meeting their needs very effectively in life in a healthy way. So, for example, you know, we, we all have um, uh, we, we all have needs for um, attention 
and interaction with human beings. We all have, uh, you know, uh, needs for um, being, you know, purpose and goals and meaning in our life. Okay, we will have, uh, you know, so, so to feel that we've achieved something and, and a need for community and making a contribution, which, you know, aids self-esteem. You know, we, we have needs for challenge and creativity to avoid the stress of boredom. You know, we will have needs for intimacy and, um, you know, or feeling in control of life to some extent, you know. And, uh, you know, we have all these needs. And, and, of course, if someone's living in such a way that many of these needs aren't met inherently by the way they are, living for whatever reason then you know curing their alcoholism but not helping them meet their needs in balance may have them uh taking up heroin you know and, and mm-hmm. so, so i think that may, may be the origin of the idea of um symptom you know, so, you know but the idea of doing deep therapy or somehow more profound or significant you know therapy i, I think comes from the idea of quite freudian you know of, of discovering why the person originally had to drink you know and 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 finding one superficial cause you know for me to use a yes mm. word it's one cause and and, and that, that is why they became an alcoholic or something it was of course we can look at the context of the person's life at the moment and what need was the drinking meeting maybe it was uh, meeting a, a need to um you know for for feeling if they feel out of control in their life you know, mm-hmm. because uh, they, they they feel very passive, then that will cause anxiety, and the alcohol may seem to meet the need for the anxiety assuasion. Uh, you know, it may may um, make them feel less bored for a little while. So, if if their life isn't rich in, in many ways, so, you know, so, so so we need to look at the life of the person. Okay, um, but oftentimes, if someone just has a simple phobia, but the rest of their life is pretty imbalanced, then shifting the phobia, we don't have to, you know, get them to um, pay for our mortgage for twenty years just because they have a simple phobia, you know, and say, okay, but you know, we still haven't discovered the cause of this phobia, so we have to, you know, talk about your childhood and this and, 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 and so forth. Um, you know, I, I had a guy come and see me who had bashful bladder syndrome, mm-hmm. and and he um, had been to a hypnotherapist I'm afraid to say before he comes see me and this hypnotherapist um, had been trained in the ideology that that, you know you have to discover causes and reasons and and then just knowing the cause will will somehow miraculously get rid of rid of the symptom Uh, and and that's non-superficial work in some way and uh, this therapist assumed that he had been sexually abused as a child you know and he was a guy in his 40s when he came to see me and and um he said, I know, he said, I didn't really believe it. He said, I know, because I know when it started, I, I felt, I, I was 17, doing my exams, and I was generally feeling very, very stressed. And I went into a public urinal, and, and I couldn't I couldn't pee, you know, because there were all these guys there, and I just couldn't pee. But he, I just felt so stressed generally, and it was like it just came out at that point. But this therapist has said, no, 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 this has all the hallmarks of sexual abuse. And she started to suggest to him that his grandfather had sexually abused him. And um, he, he um, you know, once he, he remembered this, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. then his bashful bladder would, would disappear. And he started to get really upset because he'd loved his grandfather. And, he, and his grandfather was now dead, but he only had happy memories of this man. And um, then he started doing hypnosis. And, of course, people are very suggestible in hypnosis. And mm-hmm. as, we, as we know, memory is a creative act as well as it's not just like a recording kind of thing. And he, he started to have images of his grandfather sort of looking at him in a strange way in a certain room in his grandfather's house. And it really upset him to the extent that he went back to his grandfather's house that he hadn't set foot in for 30 years. And he asked the new owners whether he could look around. And he found that the room had never existed. You know, the, the room in his hypnotic imagination had never even existed in that, in that house, mm-hmm. which made him very relieved. And I'm amazed that he still had faith in hypnotherapy to, to come and see me. So, so um, you, you know... So I dealt with a symptom, and this other person was trying to deal with what they assumed was the cause. Now that's a difference, you know. Yeah. What people assume is the cause. Um, so, you, and your, your question was, you know, are there any other sort of instances of um, change being fast? I think, or, or you know, oh, oh, yeah, t- or t- 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 taking one bit of a pattern. I yeah, think, so. and in, interu- yeah. Find it, finding a pattern um, yeah. and interrupting it rather than treating it as. Um, you know, oh, if we if we get the cause, then it will uncover the whole thing. Yeah. Um, would you say that? Um, I mean, we talk about p- people often come and say to me, "Well, look, you know, I don't know how you're going to be able to help me quickly. How can you possibly do that? I've got a very deep issue." Yeah. Would you say that deep is an adequate descriptor of of a problem, 
or is it just an unhelpful metaphor? Well, it's interesting because it certainly is a metaphor, isn't it? Deep, deep rooted, and and, and um, the garden metaphor came from um, some German educational theorists who who, who um, um, talked about child-centered psychology, and I can't remember the name of the of the, of the main one. So forgive my memory, but and and, and uh, they talked about children being need you know needing to flower, and you just leave them alone, and they'll know how to flower naturally, and, and and this sort of thing. And this got taken up by Carl Rogers, you know, and he started applying it to psychotherapy to counselling, and that uh, you know is minimal input from the therapist, and and somehow just open support would be enough for the person to flower, mm. you know. And the, the problem is that we are metaphorical creatures, but some branches of psychology have uh, assumed that the you know the map is the territory and 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 that uh, their metaphors are real so you get people talking about the inner child as if it exists <laughs> you know mm. it, can't, it can't be transformed into an inner inner adult you know um, uh, uh, or you know sort of freud was um, kind of half understood i think uh, that we are metaphorical creatures um, but he, he, for some reason, thought that it was all to do with Greek metaphor. Um, you do get people coming along saying, I think it's deep-rooted. You know? and, and often they say that without realising that they're using a gardening metaphor. Mm. Okay. Um, what, they're often, what they often really mean by that is it goes back a long way, you know, and, um, or, or it's been built up by lots of stuff that's happened to me over the years. Okay, which is fair enough, you know, and, and we could. So, what I'm, I'm quite keen to do, if, if someone does talk in metaphors, it can be useful to, to use metaphors with clients, but to actually um, unpackage those metaphors so that we can actually look at what's going on, you know. So, do you meet? So, someone might say, you know, I feel it's very deep rooted, especially if some other professional has told them that uh, I, it's very deep rooted, and, and um, you know, I'll have to pay you on a standing order, you know. Who am I target? No. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll say, well, you know, what, what, what do we mean by deep rooted? And then they might say, well, what I mean is, you know, uh, it's, and then, and then they might unpackage it themselves and say, okay, so it may have been over a long, a long period of time that this happened and we may get specific instances, you know. So, so I, I worked with a, a woman who had been, um, um, systematically raped by her uncle between the ages of 12 to 18 and there were hundreds and hundreds this many times a week she was dragged out of her bed by by this man and um you know sort of uh, raped and he was a car mechanic and now whenever she smelled engine oil she would have flashbacks you know she was in her early 40s when she came to see me and um her father had murdered her mother you know oh. um, before then and her grandparents had, she'd lived with them when the uncle was raping her but she they had been physically abusive to her and, and her brother and um, she came along, and, he, and she didn't say to me, it's deep-rooted, but it wasn't simple. You know, there's loads of stuff that happened to her. Um, but, you know, if I just assumed that we just had to explore all of that, okay, over and over again as it happened, just take her through the agony of her past again as it happened, then um, that might not have been great. You know, it might have need, met her need for, for um, intimacy, or it may have met a need for purpose and goals mm. or, or receiving and giving attention, okay, and which may have made her feel better, which may have made her feel that the ideology of the therapy was working rather than the fact that some of it was meeting her basic needs. But, um, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be, be for her. So we, 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 we just took the worst memories and worked with those worst memories and found that um, once we deconditioned the trauma from the very worst memories of these rapes using the rewind technique, which is mm -hmm. a... Uh, as, you, as you all know, is a um, sort of effective way of, of lifting trauma and phobias uh, comfortably and non-voyeuristically. Then she found she started to sleep through the night again because she was in this pattern of waking up every hour, full of adrenaline, because he'd, the uncle used to wake her up at night. And um, and eventually, so the the ending, the denouement of that story is that. Um, she she went to a um, to a wedding, it was a family wedding, and this uncle was going to be there. You know, he'd, he'd never been convicted. She'd never taken him to, him to court or anything. She mm. didn't, didn't want to. And he was going to be there in his 80s, very old man now, and she hadn't seen him since, you know, she'd been 18 when she'd run away from home. And, um, you know, she was said to me, you know, I don't have flashbacks anymore on, on nightmares, but I, somehow I feel like it's going to happen again. Like, because her relationship to him had always been one of powerlessness, you know, and uh, I sort of reassured her and we did some preparation work for that. And she found that, um, you know, she could go there and he, he, she said he, he just, he was just nothing to me. Just, just nothing. He was just, he was like a small thing over in the corner. Mm. 
we and and you know totally moved on and, and and she really moved on with her life now we had maybe eight sessions or something like that um but i i could have kept her in, in with all that i could have kept her in therapy for 20 years yeah. You know? So and, and and maybe maybe not necessarily have made it a lot. You know, you know, so the danger is that a person says, I, I it's very helpful, I understand why I have the problem, but I've still got the problem, you know. Yeah. And that's what we want to avoid. And and it's interesting as well, and I, I kinda want to reiterate something that often comes up on the on these podcasts, which is given that, that this is all pitched around being rapid change, mm. um, sometimes people come to the false conclusion that what I'm talking about is kind of these show stopping one hit wonders where they come in and you click your fingers, say the magic words and five seconds later they're now totally different. Yeah. And that actually, you know, eight sessions is somehow long winded therapy and I don't think that's the case at all. You know. No. And it doesn't have to be, you know, she came in and you flicked your fingers and she, no. she left, you know. No, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't just click my fingers and someone's better. Unfortunately, I'd oh. love to be able to do it. <laughs> what, you mean <laughs> yes. you, you, you can't do that? I, I can't. Oh. I, I can't. And, and, and but the other thing <laughs> is, if you think about it, I mean, I worked with a guy who had been traumatised in World War Two mm. in the 1990s. And, and um, you say, well, this goes back a long way. And it did. And he had some horrible memories of being in the Navy and, and you know, I won't describe his his memories to me, but uh, you know, to you because it, you know it, it, trauma can be you know vicarious. But 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 he, um, you know, we worked with him and we we took the charge out of that memory and he was fine afterwards. It was one specific memory that really troubled him for fifty years, and you could say, well, that's superficial, you know. But but if you think about it, post traumatic stress disorder trauma is quite simple in the way that it works and it and and if it takes you 20 minutes to remove it say one memory perhaps thoroughly and comfortably remove that traumatic memory then that's still quite a long time in a way because maybe the memory only took a minute to for the person to learn that trauma from yeah. the actual experience you see what i mean so the brain learns quickly that's what i'm trying to say and there's you know it, so it's still taking 10 times longer to remove it than it was for that maybe it was a minute's worth of traumatic experience that this man had 50 years before and and for fifth and that one minute of experience taught him to be traumatized for fifty years. You know, he went he he went into the REM state. He was totally transfixed on what was horrible things that were happening in this particular uh, experience. And, and um, you know that taught so the brain learns quickly. Unfortunately, it, it learned something which made his life difficult for fifty years in some ways. So so um, spending twenty minutes or, or fifteen minutes dealing with that memory is comparatively a long time if we think about how the potential of, of brain learning and how fast it can happen especially on the emotional level yeah certainly one could argue that it, it you know it's top heavy in terms of time spent but yeah you know yeah uh, well what, what, watch, watch this space for the finger clicking course that we're gonna run <laughs> yeah well you would make money you would get people signing up for that. yeah absolutely and, and, and there will be a placebo uh, element to that as well you know a absolutely yeah you know, people would feel that they had um that sort of benefit is uh, from that. And sometimes you get therapists who are quite competitive, quite macho, you know, so well, I can cure a phobia in 10 seconds. And, you know, why are you taking 20 minutes to cure this and that? And, and it all gets quite sort of, um, you know, uh, macho, should, should we say. Yeah. Um, but we can avoid that. You know, we, 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 have, we want to have a nice, gentle experience for the person overcoming a phobia or, or a trauma. It doesn't have to be a wrenching, kind of wrenching the thing from them. But, but I mean, sometimes you are looking for a cause of something. No, and 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 um, because you do want to deal with an initial experience. I, I was talking to a friend the other day who, in his fifties, is doing a film degree, and he was he he's doing a, a an essay, uh, an article, an essay, on um, Carol Morley, the director who's made, who made a film in two thousand and fourteen called The Falling, which is about. Uh, a girls' school in 1969, and, and, and there's sort of mass hysteria. As I, I haven't seen the film, but um, you know, this is a sort of synopsis. synopsis. And um, you know, it, it's sort of mass hysteria, and this sort of thing has happened in schools, and they're fainting. All these girls are fainting, and it kind of reminded me of a a client I had uh, maybe 10 years ago now, 15 year old girl, and she came along, and um, she kept fainting at school. You know, so mm -hmm. it's before the movie. She'd be, had you know, neurology tests, um, all kinds of stuff, and she'd had 50 or 60 CBT sessions, and she said that didn't kind of made it worse in a way, and she had to analyze everything and all her thoughts, and you know, the, the, somehow her thoughts were causing this rather than her emotional learning. 
and um that hadn't really worked so i was thinking oh god you know there's pressure you know <laughs> and, and, and i'm only telling you about the successful clients by the way of course we had two sessions and the first one she described she was really articulate and nice 15 year old you know really sort of intelligent articulate empathetic and sort of nice person and um they had thought that maybe she was putting this on for attention, you know, and she would only, it would only happen at school, mm. but it happened in quite profound ways. You know, for, um, she couldn't go upstairs during break times at school and all her friends that she really liked went upstairs at break time. So she wasn't sort of getting a secondary gain from this, you know, and she, she was kept downstairs and she hated it in case she, because they thought it was too dangerous to be up some stairs if she fainted and when she was coming down them, you know? Uh, so although she was marked out as special for having this, she wasn't clearly enjoying being, having a special status at school. She got, got on a French trip early on when she had this fainting and, and um, she uh, she'd almost drowned she'd fainted in a boat I think or when she was swimming in a, in a lake or something like that so so it didn't seem to be something she was sort of putting on so this is very weird so it doesn't seem to be neurological you know so, uh, it does seem to be psychological and you know she's fainting and I thought well you know human beings are metaphorical you know it, hmm. could this be without sounding too Freudian about could, could this be a metaphorical reenactment of something that, that spooked her you know and I, I sort of said well you know how long has it been going on for and she said it'd be going on for a couple of years you know very disruptive in her life she couldn't do sleepovers with friends or anything like that you know all mm. the friends were doing and um I said did anything happen around that time and her mother was in the session as well and I said, mother said well um you were really upset when um so-and-so died next door and it turned out that they'd, they'd had this neighbor who who was very youthful she was in her 70s but she was very seemed very young and she was like like a grandmother she was you know like a second mother to this to this mm. 50 this girl and this girl had gone to school one day and come back and her father had told her i've got some really bad news for you but this woman has, has died you know this neighbor and uh, much loved neighbor has died suddenly for whatever reason and that was extremely traumatic now no one had linked this to her fainting and then another time i said was there any other time like that when you went to school and she said yeah I, I came back from school and her dad again told her that the family dog had been run over and, and died you know and that's when about a week after that happened which was soon after the, the, the neighbor dying she started fainting at school okay mm -hmm. so i thought well, that, that's really interesting you know uh, and um i said now when you think about those times now even though they're two years ago if you just you know recall them does it feel horrible to recall them and she clearly was still had some at least sub-threshold trauma associated with them so once we deconditioned those two memories fainting stopped mm. okay and 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 um so there's an example of, of rapid change after 50 sessions of CBT, I'm not saying I'm better than CBT, or but but, but it, it, it's um, you know if you're going in the wrong direction, then it's going to take a long time, you know. Um, so so it, it seemed you know so that was an example of actually finding the cause, okay, and treating the symptom mm. as part of the same procedure, you know. Rather, so you could say, well, that was superficial. You're just treating the symptom, which I was, but the symptom was the cause, and the cause was the symptom, and. Um, you know that 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 was a that was just a, an example that came to mind because of this film, The Falling. Mm. This girl's fainting at school. <laughs> so, so, how would you explain to someone how you go about working out when you might look for the cause or when you might handle it in a different way? That's that's um, it's a good question. I I, I would I wouldn't necessarily so, so think it's necessarily a sort of binary thing. You know, mm. either or. Um, so I would want to always know when something started when it when did this particular period of depression begin and, and the reason i would ask that is not to find some one-off situation where you know one-off little incident or, or something necessarily because not everything's sort of concise trauma if you like you know so things are a build-up of stuff as well so um i would say you know so you got to started getting depressed about six months ago you know was anything different then quite often not always but i'd say nine times out of ten this person will say well uh, i started having problems with my relationship you know or, or some in some way one of their basic emotional needs started to be impacted you know started mm -hmm. to uh, it was difficult for them to meet it so that is and then we okay so that that need is important to this person okay so how can we meet have them start to meet this need again or stop worrying about not meeting it in future because they've had the experience of not meeting it 
um you know so 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 that would be part of it but it wouldn't be the whole therapy you know and and um you know if we're going beyond the old the sort of old uh, you know sort of neurochemical kind of you know reductionist idea of depression yeah we look at a person's life quite often it's a build-up of quite small things that aren't that dramatic you know mm. that just that just nag away and worry it's like the chinese water torture you know what one trip on the head doesn't really do anything but a thousand every day is going to drive you nuts you know mm-hmm. and, and um you know so may, maybe maybe a child started um being unhappy at school maybe they were aroused with the husband, you know, um, may, maybe uh, they had started having health worries, okay, or they were worried about an elderly parent, or lots and lots and lots of things, uh, and of course, mulling over and worrying about the future, and you know, that could be, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, precipitation of, of a depression could be multiple rather than, you know, so so, in, in, and if that's the case, we kind of want to know that because we want to know the sorts of stuff that the person worries about. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 whether they are that they seek to problem solve, or they just sit on a, or they feel powerless and helpless, and just just mull over without taking active steps to um, solve something, because we know that depressed people have often have learned helplessness and feel very passive, especially especially if they're led to believe that that they have a disease, a brain disease, um, and there's nothing they can really do about it other than take medication. So it makes them feel even more passive, perhaps. So you know the zeitgeist or or, or the group think, if you like, is disempowering in some ways about depression. I would say so. So um, you know, I will, I will, I will look, look at causes from that point of view. Mm. And, and also, of course, even if someone has a simple phobia of dogs or spiders or heights or whatever, of course, you want to know uh, what memories are fueling this this phobia because people only have a phobia because they're connected to the past and, and past learning. You know, um, so if someone tells me that they had this experience where they, they were, went for a walk in, in Sardinia up a cliff or something and they suddenly were on this ledge and they, they froze and they couldn't, they couldn't look down, they couldn't go forward, they couldn't go back. And just telling you about it, they feel terrified. Then, then that's an important thing about the past and about the causation, perhaps, of the phobia that we need to, need to know about. Mm-hmm. So, so it, you know, we, we, um, we don't just click our fingers because we do need to know how the emotional learning occurred, um, you know, what we can do about it. On um on a different note, uh, tell me if, if you wanted to get good at change work, um, are there any books that you can recommend people can go out and buy uh, and read? Okay, um, I would. I mean, there's lots of books, and I don't claim to have read all the really fantastic books on on change work. Um, I think. Um, uh, I, I mean, I love all the all Ericsson stuff, Milton Erickson stuff. Um, mm. My voice will go with you. So it's a really good book to read. Um, very entertaining. Very very politically incorrect uh, as seen through the lens of 21st century um ideas yeah or ideas we're supposed to have um so, you know but you have to obviously look at look at the time he, he was working um and also uncommon therapy um which is a fantastic book as well um uh, what, what else? <laughs> Put me on spot. Phoenix. I really like the book Phoenix as well which is about Ericsson uh, the human givens um uh, book is really really uh, clear as well about mm-hmm. about uh, you know research based commonsensical approaches to human emotional suffering. If people wanted to um, learn more about what you do um, and how you help people, uh, or even start exploring some of the trainings that you do and getting involved with you that way, how can they get involved? How can they do that? Okay, uh, probably the best um, thing to do is uh, go to uh, www unk.com so unk is unk.com uh forward slash blog and that's got uh everything on it really um you know so it's got details of it's got, got lots of blogs on it mm-hmm. it's the name um and uh it's got sort of other information about courses um go to our uncommon practitioners facebook page as well uh, so that's uncommon practitioners facebook page uh or the hypnosis downloads uh, downloads uh, facebook page but the practitioners one is as the name suggests for practitioners um, and also we've got the hypnosis downloads.com um, site as well um, and there are a few articles in there now as well and other, and other sort of bits of information um, so yes yeah, so th- those are the, probably the starting points Fantastic. We, we, we've got our other sites as well but like the books i, I, I won't list them all <laughs> and we we will put the links i will put the links up uh, on both the itunes info information um and also right. on the website so people will be able Fantastic. to if you're listening now you will be able to click through uh very easily on these things um is there anything that we haven't covered 
um, that actually, you know, when you were thinking, you know, we're going to talk about rapid change work that actually would be useful to cover or to talk about or to think about? Um, I, ooh, it's, a, it's a good, a good question. I, I, I mean, one thing I would say is that, um, you know, there's every reason as a therapist or a practitioner or a coach or whatever sort of persuasion uh, to be optimistic about people. And, uh, and the reason for that is because it seems to be the case that for every, you know, year that someone lives um, beyond a certain point, that they, they do um, naturally get better. So and this holds good for, you know, it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, even for psychosis, for schizophrenics, as long as they stay alive, you know, um, they will tend to get better, whether they have bipolar disorder or psychosis, kind of psychotic illness, intermittent episodes of, you know, psychosis or depression or, or um, you know, it, it will naturally get better because people tend to learn coping mechanisms. So what we as a therapist can do is, is sort of click into this natural process of life teaching people how to feel better and be better. And, uh, you know, because people do get better and, and you probably have the experience and I certainly have of sitting with a client the first time and you, and you become almost as despondent as they are if you're not careful mm. uh, but, but you know one thing we know about human beings is that they are here to learn and to thrive okay so what we're doing isn't unnatural it's not an unnatural drive towards health we, we are working with nature and as long as we do that sensibly and um, in, in, you know, wisely and creatively and flexibly and work with the person and don't try to sort of inflict too much of our ideology on them, but work with them in, in uh, you know, sort of uh, principled ways, then people do get better from all kinds of things. And that's something that I instinctively felt all those years ago in the psychiatric hospital. Um, and, and that's what drove me to do what I'm doing now. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time uh, to share some of these ideas with people uh, who are listening. And um, yeah, really, really appreciate it. And uh, again, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure, Howard. And, and thank you for everything that you do as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested? And even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.